and it's not about saving my community anymore although i'm sure i'd love to save my community but the reality is, is this is more about how do we heal our traumas as humanity and how do we move to a place of starting to see and be able to speak to the plants and the medicines so that we can learn from them the real solutions for how we move forward and in my work what i have found is that indigenous communities the world over that continue to hold that language that speaks with the natural world and it's those communities that are going to be the pathways to rebalancing those relationships today on the podcast healing relationships in community and in ourselves with Zaya and Maurizio Bonazzo and our special guest, Ariel Chequi Deranger, here on The Sounds of Sand, presented by Science and Non-Duality. If you're ready to explore together, listen in now. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Bruno is barking in the background. He's saying welcome He's saying to. welcome to. <laughs> it's a joy and an honor to be here with you today. And um, with our guest. With our guest. Very special guest. <laughs> Very special guest. So, Ariel. We introduce ourselves. We introduce ourselves? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Probably some people don't even know who we are. That makes sense. So my name is Maurizio Benazzo. My name is Zaya Benazzo. We co-founded SAND uh, about 15 years ago now. And uh, yeah. We are from Europe, from Bulgaria and Italy. And we live on Pomoland, southern Pomoland in Sebastopol, California. And we are delighted to have with us today. Well, this, I'm, I'm so excited because, yeah, uh, Ariel Sequi Derange. Uh, Ariel, yes, Ariel. We, we saw her at, the, at one event, Dying and Leaving Here, a sand event last October, and her presentation really blew my mind. But let's get to the conversation first. Let me introduce her briefly and then Ariel should introduce herself because she can do much better justice to, to that. So Ariel, she's both a mother and a member of the Atabasca Chipe, Chipe One First Nation and is the executive director and co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action. And I'll leave it to that. Ariel, I'll leave it to you to continue and introduce yourself. Masicho, thank you. So Hoa Iklanete, Denesotvaneta Ariel Saekwe Hushe, Durange Betsini Hasli. So my name is Ariel Saekwe Durange, and my name in my language, which is Dene or Dene Sotlane, means Thunder Woman. And um, as I've so eloquently introduced, I am a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. And that's the colonial name that was given to our nation, but our true name that we're in the process of reclaiming is Kaitale Dene. And Kaitale Dene refers to, Kaitale translated means like people of the willow and Dene is people of the land. And what it refers to is we come from the Peace Athabasca Delta, which is one of the world's last remaining inland freshwater deltas of the world. And it's a marshland full of willows. So our name Kaitale means people of the willow is a reference to the to the Peace Athabasca Delta and the, ter the territories where we come from. And that's located in the Treaty 8 territory of Northern Alberta. And for those that don't know, Treaty 8 is the largest numbered treaty territory in the country. It's bigger than well, a lot of European countries. It's quite massive. I can't remember it offhand, but I think it's like 844,000 square kilometers of land. Massive amounts of territory that spans Alberta, Saskatchewan, British Columbia, and the Northwest Territories in the subarctic and Arctic regions of Canada. And um, I'm a mother, I have two children, and I currently live in a Miskwichiwa Skyagon, or 
Edmonton in the Treaty 6 territory. So I'm a visitor here. Um, and that's also all of this located in so-called Canada. And I'm just really, really excited to be here today and be involved in this conversation about what it means to be in community and moving towards healing. And in that process, in relation to my work as the co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action, when we talk about climate justice, there absolutely must be a component that looks at how we are building community and how we need to repair all of the harms and the traumas of the generations before us that have gotten us into this climate crisis. So this conversation is just so pertinent to me and one that is deeply held within my body of work, but also in my personal life. I did want to start today with a little activity. So I do want to invite the folks that are joining today to join me in a bit of an activity before we move into the conversation. So wherever you are, I invite you to find the floor. You can just put your feet on the floor. If you're sitting on the floor, great. But just find a little bit of space to ground yourself. Maybe sit up nice and tall. I'm, I'm also a yoga instructor. And that's a whole other conversation. But um, so just finding some nice length in your spine, really finding yourself and just feel grounded wherever you are. Maybe take a nice big, big deep breath in through your nose and release out of your mouth. Put your hands on your thighs or if you feel inclined, Maybe take your left heart, left hand and put it over your heart and your right hand and put it over your belly. And if you feel comfortable, you can close your eyes or if not, you can find a focal point somewhere in the room and just find your breath. Just feel your belly as it expands as you inhale and slightly contracts as you exhale. Don't force anything, just find your breath and listen. And as you're breathing and listening to your breath, think about a plant that's really special to you, maybe in your house, maybe outside your house. Maybe there's a tree in your yard that you see every day, but a plant that's very special to you that you see every day. And just keep breathing as you think of this plant and visualize it. And as you're breathing, just imagine the fact that as you inhale and then exhale, you're breathing out that carbon dioxide. Inhaling oxygen and releasing carbon dioxide. And that tree or that plant, or that special medicine of yours that's living in the world is absorbing what you're releasing. And as it absorbs it, it releases its own oxygen. And just simply by breathing an act that you do every day, all day long, you are in relationship with that plant. You are in relationship with another being simply by being in existence, an interconnected relationship, one that's built on reciprocity. What you give and what you take is equal. And just continue to breathe and think about this relationship of reciprocity and deep interconnection and the fact that every single being on this planet is intertwined in this dance and this relationship of interconnection and reciprocity just simply by being. You can release your hand from your heart and from your belly. Just relax, maybe roll your shoulder shoulders out, roll your neck side to side. And I welcome you all here. 
simply just by being, we are in relationship. And how we move back to that relationship of reciprocity and recognition is part of this journey of healing and finding ways to come together as communities. And I really am excited for this conversation today. And I just thought this would be a great grounding activity to start with. And I also want to say thank you for this activity that I learned from a good dear friend of mine, Aquia Smith, who is doing tremendous work um, in the Southern United States with Black Lives Matters and uh, Black liberation movements. So thank you, Aquia, for this activity. It's been such a beautiful activity that, that I've been loving to share with others around the world. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Ariel. So simply beautiful, refreshing, and touch. I love it. Because I have such a relationship with the plant in, in my garden, and I never thought about the oxygen part. I, I, oh my God, they're so part of me. I cry literally when I see them blossoming. A few days ago, the bumblebee, the, oh, the bumblebees appeared, and I was weeping. I mean, oh my God, you're back. But I never thought about also the oxygen. That simple exchange of the oxygen is so elegant. Uh, an elegant way to touch the deep relationship. Mm -hmm. do, do, you, should, do you want to start talking about relationship in your tradition, the relationship to to the land, to yeah. being, to oh, the interconnectedness. The interconnectedness. Well, yeah. I think we were thinking about, you know, this community started by looking more towards the East for the teachings yes. of oneness, of interconnectedness. And... Um, and we're just curious, like, the understanding of your people, of, of indigenous people, of mm -hmm. interconnectedness, if you can just give us a little bit of a yeah. taste of how that uh, deep understanding has come through or is being taught in, in your community. And yeah, I think, you know, even in my introduction, just our namesakes. And if you talk to almost any indigenous groups throughout Turtle Island or North America, there is a deep connection, even in our names to our origin stories, or, or in our origin stories are directly connected to the lands. And so as Kaitale Dene Sotlene, we are people of the willow, people of the land. And there's a deep reverence and connections. And that activity of breathing and being in connection and reciprocity and relationship is one that's deeply embedded in our culture. Just it wasn't something that I had to seek. It was just something that I grew up with. And I didn't know that these, that there were fractures that even existed between our understanding of the oneness that exists in the universe, in the world. And so as a child, I was always taught that the land, the water, even the rocks, like so-called inanimate objects, rocks, soil, land, insects, every blade of grass, every medicine we pick, every tree in the forest, and every animal that inhabits all those places from the skies to the waters to the lands. These are all our relatives. Everything is given a relationship and that we are in a relationship with these, these other living beings in the world. And that it's important that we think about that reciprocity. So if you are taking medicine, what are you giving back? What is your gift to the land? How do we live in, uh, in this symbiotic relationship that honors and respects the lives of all living things and recognizes that you are just one of those living things that exists in the world? And that is a tenant of almost any indigenous culture the world over. And a lot of the sort of particularly North America and, and Europe, there is this desire to seek culture in other places out in the East, um, you know, Buddhism, Taoism. Um, there's beautiful religions, uh, like even Hinduism and Sikhism. There's all these beautiful religions, but though all of these religions were born out of relationships to place and to the natural world. They were born out of the, the lessons that were conveyed to humans through these beautiful, deep relationships of deep meditation. And those same types of meditation, those same practices, those same philosophies and value systems existed right here in North America. But colonization came uh, with this idea of man's dominion over nature. 
doctrines of discovery, terra nullis, that this was simply to be taken. And with it, there was the destruction and the annihilation of those cosmologies and the demonization actually of those cosmologies and those same systems that existed here and then you fast forward hundreds of years later and the peoples that colonized these worlds are seeking those same connections once again but seeking them elsewhere and i think that comes from this is a this is a theory of mine but a lot of that comes from the fact that in order to recognize and honor those same philosophies that exist in this continent they would have to grapple with the fact that they were a part and they are complicit in the the destruction of those religions that they were they would be complicit and have to acknowledge that they did wrong to demonize and um, vilify indigenous peoples indigenous cultures indigenous cosmologies for the last 500 plus years and within our own cultures and our own um, practices as indigenous peoples they still that are still practiced today but somehow still not revered or respected in the same way that a lot of eastern philosophies are as we have deep meditation through practices of fasting, through practices of building relationships with medicine. Our medicine people don't just suddenly become medicine people. They have to learn those medicines by building relationships with them. They have to understand what those medicines are. And my mother is Lakota, my dad is Dene. And in Lakota culture, they give you medicine names when you're children. And those are the, the medicines that you need to build relationships with. And I have this really beautiful story for me that was I don't know I think about it as a lesson as a child I I so my medicine name or my medicine is mint or peppermint and it grows along the marshlands and it's pretty abundant everywhere um, in most places in in Canada and so I I'm about six years old I think I was about six years old and we were living out on on Papikasi's reservation in southern Saskatchewan in Treaty 4 territory and I wanted to go pick mint and we had some dried mint on the counter. And so I looked at it and I was like, mom, I want to go pick some mint. She's like, okay, well go, go find some. And I went out to the little marshy area by our house and I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find any. And I keep coming back. I'm like, what does it look like? And I like pull a leaf and I'd be like, doesn't smell. And I was like, no, no, that's not mint. And I'm just like, okay. And I just kept going in and out. I'd be like, I can't find any anywhere. And my mom said, it's everywhere, honey. You can find it. You just have to look. And I was like, I can't find it. And I felt so defeated. And my mom said, did you talk to the mint yet? And I said, well, no. And she's like, did you give it an offering? And I said, no. And then she takes a little bit of tobacco and she pinches it into my hand. And she said, go down by the water and talk to the mint. Ask it to let it see you, let it see itself. And she's like, and then give it an offering. And she's like, I promise you'll find it if you do this. So I went back down to the little marshy area and I sat down and I just sat down in the ground and I closed my eyes and I moved into meditation, but didn't call it meditation, but I moved into prayer and I spoke to the mint and I said, mint, I really want to find you. You're my medicine. I, you know, whatever a six-year-old does. And I put down this little offering. I said, here's my offering to you. And I put it into the soil and I pushed it down. And then I opened my eyes and lo and behold, I had been sitting in a mint patch the entire time, but I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it until I had this moment where I was in relationship with it, where I spoke to it, where I gave back. And it is those, those simple acts of relationship that are embedded in indigenous cultures. And it, so many of our communities are losing those connections by being sold the fact that we need to buy into this american dream through the tactics of forced assimilation over hundreds of years and it's not that every indigenous person is some mystical magical person that holds these philosophies and values but how do we as humanity find the fact that these values exist everywhere in the world and how do we return to restore those relationships with the natural world and find and replicate that balance that lived and existed for millennia for so many of our communities that was destroyed through colonization. And how do we move forward to that? And so a big challenge to the folks here today is understanding where you live. Where are you from? 
Who are the people that reside there? What is the territories that you live on? Who are the, what is the culture? What are the cosmologies? Who are those people? How can you build those relationships with them? There's a really great, I'm gonna share it in the chat. There's a really great link. So if you don't know where you are, there is an organization that has created a, um, like a service, I guess. It's called nativeland.ca. It was created by Canadians, um, so-called Canadians. And it's not the whole world, but it's as much as we can. It is, you can find out whose territory you're on, the original peoples of that territory. And so when you introduce yourself, whose land are you on? You know, that's a simple act of one of the first things is like understanding whose land you're on. And then maybe you can move towards understanding those relationships that existed for millennia beforehand. Maybe you can build and deepen your relationships and understanding. But who we are and our identities are intrinsically linked to these places that we lived for, for millennia. And that's because relationships, relationships with species, interspecies relationships changes you. It's why so many indigenous nations in North America have clans that are associated with an animal or a plant. And so these clan systems, it's because that plant or that animal became a intrinsic part of that family member and helped to develop and evolve that nation as they moved forward. That medicine, those plants, they became a part of their identity, not through some mystical, some sort of, you know, non-explainable way but through like a scientific deeply scientific way the relationships that we foster with other living creatures actually change who we are they change the ways in which we see and view the world we develop relationships and language with other species the fact that i could speak to the mint and then suddenly see it is just a tiny fraction of an example of what it would mean if we stopped to be in relationship with the natural world and understand that reciprocal relationship that exists. And then when it's just embedded in your culture and your everyday as growing up, knowing that all those, every single blade of grass, every single insect, every single tree and species on this planet is your relative, it changes the way you move in the world. It changes the way that you relate to things and it, changes your fundamental values of what's important it's not about that job it's not about that career it's not about how much money you make but it's more about how do we remain in balance and how do we remain in this reciprocal relationship that honors both my life as an individual but my life in relationship to the whole No, to me, I'm so fascinated to hear you because as an organization, we started, as I said, 13, 15 years ago, talking about non-duality, right? The interconnectedness of all. But we went through that, to that, through the head in a way, no, I'm one with the universe, the universe is me, it's the universe that is me, right? And and what what's so and in time our organization changed that we became more and more towards the embodiment. We feel more and more, okay, but what about my body? What about my day-to-day? -day? And you seem to to add this new, beautiful, not new, but added this, this extra twist to it. You seem to are embodying the evolution of how we see the interconnectedness, which, which not being human-centric in a way, you know? Because in this non-duality to me, it was like, oh, I'm one with the universe. But yeah, I'm one with the bees and the, and the flies and the, the mosquito bites me. I'm one with it as well. I'm one also with the, what I call negative, right? In mm -hmm. the, in the, so I have to, uh, to create a relationship. So I, I adore to hear this. Uh, to me, so it fills my heart, basically. It fills my heart so deeply. And also seeing that how maybe some of our, not maybe our contemporary spirituality carries the spirit of colonialism. Absolutely. You know, we, because we are orphans, because we have 
been disconnected from the land, from our ancestors. We went to search somewhere else, you know, in Indian traditions, in a, for teachings, for gurus, for deities, again, outside of ourselves, outside of our immediate community, uh, for spirit. And mm -hmm. that already carries that spirit that per and perpetuates that uh, deep wounding that we've inherited and we are passing it along yeah. so i just love the the reminder the invitation that it's right here the relationships are right here with the land with the people with the plant in front of me i don't need to it's not complex i don't need to do a complex practices to achieve uh special altered states of consciousness <laughs> right. It's just right here yeah. if I could listen. Yeah. yeah. I think that's important to, to know that it's not complex, but what is complex is how we get to a place of healing and mending those wounds of the past, right? It's easy to build the relationship in the now, but recognizing the facts that, that like you said it, like even in our spirituality, there's there's colonization that still exists within that. And that's absolutely true. And we have to think about that. Like even... As like as I'm navigating um, through teaching yoga and understanding yoga, like I've been taking a course with Susanna Barkataki, who talks about decolonizing yoga practices. Um, and what does that mean? Like, so yoga has been really a lot of folks feel it's been really whitewashed and changed and you know twisted almost into this Western commodified culture. And when we look to the the cultures that are here now how do we not replicate those same systems of harm right how do we acknowledge that even in yoga yoga it became very popularized and I'm, i'll use this as an example and then compare it back here but yoga became popularized popularized and there's a lot of in the west um sort of during this time in which the british were trying to to almost prove to the world you know, India is not actually backwards. Like they're they're wonderful people. Let me prove to you. And it was through a white lens and through white validation that yoga became popularized, right? And so even with that, and it wasn't even a, a culture. It wasn't even in, looked at in the same way that we consume yoga in Western cultures. Yoga was just a part of the everyday, just like I spoke about. Yoga was just a practice of moving our bodies, meditation, things that were done every day in Southeastern Eastern cultures for hundreds and thousands of years, hundreds and thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands of years in different areas. And when you look at that, then suddenly someone wanted to be like, oh, wow, this is really beautiful. Let me show the rest of white society and then validate it as real. And it's not until that moment. And then suddenly they want to, put terms and they want to define what is yoga what is the philosophy what are those things to create the parameters of how it can be consumed but but more scarily is how can we commodify it because colonization and systems of white supremacy which sort of created this situation in yoga are the same systems that brought with it like white supremacy, colonization, capitalism, patriarchy. These systems all come together about dominance, you know, man's dominion over. And how do we grapple with the undoing of that before we start just simply going, oh, it's right here in front of me. I don't need to go super far away. But how do we ensure that we're not going to replicate those same systems of harm? How do we learn the difference between appropriation and appreciation how do we acknowledge and uh, reconcile hundreds of years of oppression marginalization demonization and villainization of these indigenous peoples here before we start talking about ways in which we can honor and just take on these simple acts right here in the now and that's that's the most difficult part that is the most difficult part and it's not impossible and you can do these things simultaneously that's not to say that it can't it's like oh you just have to like let it happen go away we we absolutely must think about things um less in like a linear like a b c d e f g this is what we need to do and think about them as a whole what is happening simply by being 
what changes simply by being present? How do we change our mindsets? How do we move from like trying to search from for that mint in the grass and not being able to see it to taking a moment and stopping and acknowledging that that plant is a living thing, acknowledging that these things are in existence and that we have to give in order to receive. How do we acknowledge these moments and take that time rather than just searching for that mint in the marsh? And so what is healing? How, or what is right relationship? I, I fully hear you. Yeah, it's a, it's a complex process of healing. You want to call it trauma, wounds, intergenerational wounds. We all carry, everyone carries that in, in our souls, in our bodies. Where do we begin? And what is, mm-hmm. and we, it's probably a no going process that never ends. That's, it's not like, oh, we're healed now and we can right. move on. But I'm just curious, like, what is your understanding of healing and what is the indigenous cosmology of healing? Um, healing is a, is, is, is complex, you know, like again, like connection can be easy and healing is much more complex. Um, we absolutely have to be aware of that the healing journey isn't also like we all just go okay let's start healing and we can all do it together like there's yes we are all part of the same you know systems and universe and we live in relationship we absolutely do but that doesn't mean that everything is absolutely equal and there's we need to talk about like equity and equality not just equality like oh we're all gonna be given space to meditate but if you're all if you have a bunch of people in a room and everyone's told okay here's your space to meditate this is a safe space there are some people that might be able to do that because they have less things to remove from themselves in order to get to that state of of conscious like of just like equilibrium of just pure focus where other people they have to let go of like worrying about poverty worrying about discrimination, worrying about their children and whether or not they're safe, to worrying about like if they're going to have enough food to eat and so on. And systemic barriers, like am I in the right space? Are people looking at me? Do I fit in here? And all of these things have to be unpacked before they can find their time to find that space of focus and silence and stillness. And yet we're all given, okay, we're meditation for one hour. And then some people are like, oh my God, I feel so good. And that one person may have only had five minutes of stillness and so when we think about this in the process of healing how do we create spaces that acknowledge the differences but simultaneously acknowledge that we are part of the same process of healing and so resma menicum who is fantastic has done a lot a lot of a lot of talk of, uh, does a lot of really great presentations on this but he talks about how like black bodies need to heal with black bodies indigenous bodies need to heal with indigenous bodies white bodies need to heal with white bodies jewish bodies need to heal with jewish bodies and then within there like black jewish bodies white jewish bodies and so on and so forth and the reason why is not for segregation and and this is also true like even within indigenous communities not every indigenous community is in the same place and we have these deep processes of healing that we need to do in our communities and those communities need those spaces to figure out where are the areas that are so sore what are the things that need tending to the most for us how do we get to that place where we can enter into a room and find stillness with others and when we find those places to heal then we can enter into those spaces and be healthier and be able to contribute to those collective healing processes and there's this rush to like we all just need to be one no color we all bleed the same blood and that's absolutely true but our stories and the things that have happened to us they require healing and intergenerational trauma is now becoming quite widely accepted as you know, very accepted in the in the medical community as a real thing that things and it's genetically passed down through our bloodlines. So we might not know why, like we 
cower at a certain sound. But something may have happened to, you know, our ancestor two generations ago, and it is just passed down and our fight, flight, flee mechanisms get activated for different ways. And we have to heal that intergenerationally through our, our flat family lines and through our bloodlines in order to move forward to a new space, to be able to enter into those spaces of collective healing. And so we have to honor that, but we also have to honor what was our role in the harm of others and how do we reconcile that because we have to heal from that and resma talks about that as well like how do white bodies heal from white body supremacy trauma right and like that gets into this idea of like oh my god like like white people we talk about white guilt white tears there's a lot of this conversation but it's real and that's from this trauma that you all carry and if it we don't like as people of color, like BIPOC, you know, black, indigenous people of color, we don't need to carry that. Like you all need to figure out how to heal those traumas as well, how to unpack those areas of stickiness and pain and intergenerational trauma. Because your ancestors, you know, may have colonized and brutalized and vilified and demonized peoples. And now you want to get to a place where you're like, I honor you. It's like, yes, you can, but please first heal that trauma before you come to honor us. Heal that trauma before you come to say, I acknowledge the beautiful culture you have and I'm sorry for what my ancestors did. It's like, we don't need to hear sorry. We need to see you do the active work to heal yourself from that trauma so you can come to these spaces and be in relationship. And you also have to be ready for those communities not to be ready to receive you. And that takes humility. That takes deep humility to be like, I'm ready. I've done my healing. I want to be in relationship with you. And someone says, sorry, we don't want to be in relationship with you because we're still healing. And there's there's a lot of times people feel that when they're pushed away, that they're like, oh my God, see, like they don't even want us. I did all my healing. I did all these things and they don't even want us. Like they just want to be segregated from us. And it's like, that's not true. That's not true. Our communities have more healing to do. Think about coming into that room for stillness. We're still building towards finding ways to let go and heal from generations of brutalized, horrific trauma. And that takes time to do. And not everyone's gonna be on the same timeline in that journey of healing. And we have to acknowledge and accept that things are not going to move in our in the way that we want to. And I think about this in respect to like, like hunting, fishing, or trapping, you know, you, you can be completely prepared. You can get all of your gear together, everything. I've got everything that I need. I know I've been tracking these animals forever. And then suddenly you get out there and you can't, there's nothing, there's nothing for you. And you can pray all you want. You can talk to these species. You can be in a relationship. And that animal's just like, I'm not, I'm not going to be here. That's not my, that's not my space today. I'm not going to do it. And you can just be like, I did everything right. Why didn't I catch that fish? Or why didn't I, you know, you know, find that buffalo that I was hunting for the last like week? And it's because you have to have humility that the world doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's about the timing of everything coming together when it needs to come together and having humility to understand that it doesn't matter how perfect and how great you have everything ready to go, that there are going to be times where people aren't going to be ready to receive you. And how are you going to receive that? How are you going to learn lessons from that to move forward, to deepen your own healing practices? Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, so the journey always starts right here, you know, with our own wounds turning towards those traumas that we haven't wanted to feel for generations. And um, so it's like as we heal ourselves, we can see the pain in others. Uh, If we don't see our own pain and suffering, it's hard to... um, to see that in other people. And I hear you, we can't just jump and say, oh, now I'm trauma-informed. Let's just relate because yeah. we all had traumas. <laughs> it's not, that's that's yeah. the complexity you are pointing to. Yeah. That is where we have to take it very slow, very, with a lot of... Yeah, because in a way, yes, we are all 
relating, but we also, also respect the relationship. They have to respect mm -hmm. the other part of the relationship as uh, is her, you know, <laughs> level of understanding and needs, you know? So in a way, yeah. The, the metaphor you use about the hands is absolutely in perfect. Staying in relationship while we're told, like, totally no, real. not now. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's like a child. That doesn't mean the relationship yeah. is broken. It's broken, It's yeah. still there. It's a process. But we have to respect the space that's yeah. asked for. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, even, oh, there was this really beautiful story from a, uh, I wish I could remember where I heard it, and I'm going to, and I, I apologize if someone hears this and it's like, oh, that's my story, because um, I just can't remember. But there's this really beautiful story when we even think about like in time and relationships and not thinking that we have all the best available information. Oh, just because I'm trauma informed, I know what to do. And it relates to a, cons a conservation project. So there's a certain bird in the Arctic. I don't know what bird it is. Um, but the, the Inuit people in the community, they when there was only one egg laid of this certain bird, they would that's when they would collect all of them. But if there were three eggs in the in the nest, they would only collect they would collect two and they would leave one. And the conservation people were like, if there's only one egg, why are you taking one egg? And they knew through a relationship, because they're like, that's 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 the, against conservation practices like if there's three eggs that, that's when you should be maybe taking all of them because these birds and animals are doing quite well and they're breeding quite well and the Inuit said actually this bird it, it works in cycles this bird that's only laying one egg is actually at the end of its life and it's only laying one egg because it's an it's an older bird so it's oh. fine that i can take it but the younger birds lay three eggs and you should always make sure that you leave eggs maybe only take one of the three if there's three eggs there but if there's one that bird's old it's not a not a necessary bird to like protect because it's going to be dying probably this year or next year and it's not a big deal and the conservation person was like what and then they studied and they found out that this correlated absolutely <laughs> right and it's about like having the humility to to enter into spaces and have your ideas challenged how do we accept being challenged in these spaces when we think we've even when we think we've done all the healing and somebody's saying no nah, actually that's not right you're doing it wrong you shouldn't leave all three of those eggs there you should be taking maybe one if you're going to be harvesting any at all for the from the three uh, from like the from from that one or maybe just leaving them completely because apparently some in you have believed that you don't take any when there's three eggs laid because there's a young bird and you want that young bird to be able to continue to proliferate and it's the old bird take as many as you want because it just doesn't really matter it's going to die pretty soon anyways and there's this connection of like coming into spaces being like i know all the best available information so this conservation person is like i know conservation and then them being like, no, you don't, because you haven't lived in relationship with this animal. And being able to have our values challenged and having the humility to move forward. But also a big part of this with humility is also recognizing that you might be a source of trauma for people. That like, you have to accept that our complicity could could be the trauma trigger for certain people and that is super important to understand you know women that are that may have experienced uh, sexual assault at the hands of a, of a man may never feel safe around men and a man simply being in presence may trigger them and we kind of understand this we we accept that but we don't accept it when it comes to to, to race we're just like, oh, get over it. That happened so long ago. Not all white people are like that, or not all black people are like that. But those traumas are real. Those are lived, real experiences. And when you try to minimize someone's real, lived experience in trauma and say, like, oh, my God, I'm not that person. Like, why are you blaming me? It actually invalidates that person's ability. And it further ingrains them to hold on to that trauma and fight harder. And so if we are actually invested in healing those deep racial wounds, particularly, we have to be ready and willing to be like, I get it. I like my people traumatized you and I want you to heal and just be like, 
I want to like find ways to make this safe. And if that means I need to remove myself from this situation, then I will do it. And it's not about segregation. And again, intergenerational trauma is real. And the, the other thing too, is that with indigenous peoples and our relationships to land, that trauma and that violence isn't just subjected to the trauma on ourselves as humanity. It is the trauma of our ancestors and our relations. So when we talk about the trauma that happened to our lands and territories, it is just as real and visceral as the trauma that we experience on our on our human relatives and our human relations. And this is I some I often cry when I tell this story. I'm gonna try not to, but just to give you an example of how deep it is, in my territory, um, Treaty Eight in northern Alberta. It's being developed for the expansion of the Alberta tar sands. This is one of the dirtiest bottom of the barrel um, oil and gas uh, projects in the world. And it's also one of the largest on the planet. And it is it involves massive amounts of open pit mining to access oil from the ground. And we have, I think it's like 144,000 square kilometers of land that has been set aside for this and about like like 1500 square kilometers of land has been open pit mined and then it's it's quite <laughs> grotesque and then on top of it there's massive tailings ponds where they like deforest the land and they put all the toxic runoff and chemicals those take up another like 300 square kilometers of land and then they have mounds of of uh uh, sulfur. We actually have sulfur pyramids in Alberta that are like massive, like five blocks long, five stories high of just sulfur that's caked and packed into these pyramid-like structures because they make so much of it and it's so low grade that they can't sell it back to market. And so they're just stacking it up and it's not protected. And so it blows off into the wind. I mean, the, the legacy of environmental destruction in my territory is profound. And some of the, like, it's, it's like, I, I can't even explain it. Like a lot of people that have been there say it's like going to Mordor because you're in this beautiful boreal forest. And then suddenly you come up upon these massive structures spewing out smoke and lights everywhere and trucks moving. And they have propane cannons that go off every like 15 seconds to stop birds from landing on these toxic tailings ponds because they think they're bodies of water and it's in the migratory patterns of all of these like, migratory bird species. So it's like boom, 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 lights, trucks booming. Like it, the smell is, is so nauseous. It's like noxious gas in the airs all the time. It's horrific. So as a child, I grew up in this territory saw the beauty of the land, went swimming in the lakes, drank water from the river systems, you know, fished, went trapping, hunting with my, with my dad, beautiful, beautiful lands and territories, beautiful memories as a child. And then as a, my, my parents separated, we moved to Southern Saskatchewan. We lived in Southern Saskatchewan for a long time. Um, and then I went back up to Fort McMurray a few times. This is where most of the development is in Fort McMurray, Alberta. But I hadn't been there in almost a decade when I was like 20, 22, 23 to go like spend some time in the bush. And we stopped on the highway. And uh, I remember my dad pointing out to the Sincrude site. And he said, he said, see that? That's the project of the white man because he doesn't respect the land. He doesn't protect the land. He doesn't speak for those that don't speak. And there was like some oil in the, like the ditch. And he's like, and this is what it creates. It creates this toxic, dirty medicine that poisons the land and it poisons our water systems. And he's like, and we have to fight them from continuing to destroy our land. And when you get older, you'll have to continue to fight them for us. And so I knew that the projects had been expanding, but I hadn't seen them for a long time. And so I go up there and one of my aunts is taking us to go to the community of Fort Mackay, which is completely now surrounded with projects. Like their whole entire re reserve is surrounded by projects, toxic, um, you know, landscapes, big mines, everything. And we're driving out there and I hadn't seen this in a long in a decade and in that decade they went from producing like 180,000 barrels a day to creating like a million barrels a day 
And so the expansion was immense. We come and we drive over this like hill because you kind of drive over this hill and then suddenly it's just devastation everywhere. And I'm sitting in the back of the car and she was like, oh yeah, these pro projects have grown so much. Like, look at how they've destroyed everything. And I'm sitting in the back of the car. The fumes are overwhelming. And it's like seeing like my ancestors destroyed. It's like seeing all those relatives from the rocks and the river systems to the forest and everything there just laid out dead on the side of the road. And no one cares because it's just the way things are. And I couldn't breathe. I remember sitting there and I couldn't even hear her speak anymore because my ears started ringing. And tears were coming down my face. And I just was like, how can this be happening? Mm -hmm. And so that violence to the land is a violence on us and our bodies. Because when you destroy those places, when you destroy the Delta, when you're destroying the Kaitale, you are destroying the people of the Willow. You're destroying those communities. And that is what environmental racism is. It's not about how much GHGs you're putting into the atmosphere. It's not about whether you create a compensation lake or the one you avoid. It's about the fact that there is no reverence or regard for the fact that that violence on the land is a violence to our people. And that comes from the fact that we are connected. Those things are our relatives. And when you are raised to believe that, when you see that violence on the land, you feel it deep inside of yourself. And if we can't accept that that is real, then we are never going to get to a place of true healing between our peoples. <sighs> I'm sorry for crying. No, we are all crying with you. This is, thank you for describing it so vividly, so it touches our deep in our bodies. Yeah, because it's not a description, it's a felt expression. It's so... You know, I was an activist when I was in my 20s in Europe, a climate activist. We, but, and I, I got this illusion and I'm realizing what I was missing is this felt body experience, that connection to the land that can inform activism. That's the only way you can be an activist, only when you have that relationship. I was wondering, like, what is activism for you? Where... What is that? Like, how how do you lead a climate action movement from what inspires and informs your actions? I mean, <clears throat> I think that, that feeling, that, that understanding that, that violence on the land is violence against our people is part of it. Um, it's a it's a big part of it, and like this is like when you when I go to my community and I talk to anyone about this stuff, like this is that that story that I shared is not mine alone. Like that is a story that's shared by so many people, and it's very challenging because we we live in a modern world. <laughs> like I'm sitting here talking to you on Zoom from my laptop in my house in the city, and I have to pay bills and I have all of the things. Like we live in a capitalist structure but we're forced into this they we've referred to it as the ransom economy where we're where we're simultaneously fighting for better wages and better jobs and acceptance into like government systems but those same systems are complicit in our destruction and the abrogation of our to the natural world. and he he doesn't amazing because <laughs> like, that's how long healing takes <laughs> it takes a long time and um, indigenous peoples there's a lot, lot of issues with substance abuse and that comes from the fact that the, that feeling that I just shared with you is not respected by so many people it is like oh my god ugh, get over it really you're going to cry over a tree you know like that kind of sentiment is it's really constantly um, portrayed to our communities over and over again. And so then I end up in this situation where like, 
the values of my community, the things that I was raised with aren't real. They're not valued. They're not true. And, and then they struggle to be in society. I struggled when I became an adult and I realized that other, other adults didn't have these same core values. I went through a deep depression. I was like, what am I? Am, am I wrong? Is the world wrong? Where do I fit in this place? How can people not see these things? I was angry. I was sad. I was depressed. I felt lonely and isolated. And I went through all these deep emotions. And some people fall prey to alcoholism or substance abuse because that's also a stereotype. And we live through these like, you know, cycles of um, cycles of oppression is sometimes we embody that those stereotypes we become we internalize those stereotypes we internalize those oppressions and we act them out and so my cousin you know he's struggling he gets a job offered in the tar sands and he he's he's like driving truck the big trucks that dig up the sand and he said he was out there he's just driving the truck he's getting paid a hundred thousand dollars a year to drive a truck a massive amount of money. You don't even need much of an education. You need a grade 10 and then you need some like extended training on top of it. And they sell this in our communities. You want to make your lives better. Here you go. Have a job in this industry. You can make lots of money, buy a nice house and basically assimilate into our culture. And so he's driving truck. And he said one day he's out there and he's like every night, the only way I can cope with what I've been doing every day is to drink. And then I'm sitting out there and I'm just driving one day and he's like, I just start bawling. Cause I, he's like, I can't do this anymore. And he stops and he gets out of his truck and he just leaves it and walks off the site. And he's like, I can't be a part of this anymore. And he struggled for years after that with like, what do I do? And he became a part of the environmental movement and he spoke at all these events and he told his story and he shared his own journey, but he still struggled. And so part of that is like that story of feeling like I don't fit in, my values aren't true in really trying to move this narrative forward that this is not a singular, like this is not just some single thing that's happening in my community. But my experience and the experience of my cousin and the experience of other people in my community is a microcosm of what is happening at a global level on this planet. Indigenous communities the world over are experiencing these same things. And I know this because I, I sit and I'm a part of the UN Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change. And there's all these different Indigenous peoples from the Global South and Africa, Australia, Asia, the world over. And it is the same story over and over again. And for me, that is when I started to realize, oh, wait a second, I'm not alone. I'm not um, I'm not crazy. There's nothing wrong with me. There's something broken here. There's something broken here. And it was really about our relationships with the land and our relationships with each other. And that became the, the impetus for me to move forward into so-called activism. But there's no other way for me. Like, I can't move forward any other way like and i've tried i've been like i'm gonna do something different like this work is hard because you're constantly being up against people that don't value what you say or want to dismiss what you say and try to tell you that that's not real or that's just some sort of wooey wooey land stuff like go talk to some hippie somewhere else and it's like i'm not a hippie i'm not a hippie i'm not trying to like move towards these are the values that I, i've seen them lived i've seen them in practice i've experienced them i know what they are and i know that there are other people that feel them and i know that that land those trees those plants those animals that exist in the water on the land and in the air they are our relatives and humanity is responsible for the destruction of their habitats the destruction of their water systems the destruction of the air that they breathe and we have a responsibility to be in right relationship with the land and with each other in order to get that because somewhere something happened in humanity's past and timeline where this fracture happened where we disconnected ourselves we unplugged ourselves and said we were more and we have to undo that. We have to let go of that ego that humanity is more. 
Otherwise, we're going to continue to replicate these systems of harm. And that has been the impetus for me. I've seen this happen over and over again. That drives what I do every day. And it's not about saving my community anymore, although I'm sure I'd love to save my community. But the reality is, is this is more about how do we heal our traumas as humanity and how do we move to a place of starting to see and be able to speak to the plants and the medicines so that we can learn from them the real solutions for how we move forward. And in my work, what I have found is it's that indigenous communities the world over that continue to hold that language that speaks with the natural world. And it's those communities that are going to be the pathways to rebalancing those relationships. So much to take in. Oof. Thank you, Ariel. Maybe we just take a moment to take all this in. There's so much uh, you've shared. And thank, thank you, you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. <laughs> thank you, Ariel. Bye-bye. Thank you to all of our guests today, Zaya, Maurizio, and Ariel, for such a powerful and important conversation. We invite you all to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content available exclusively to SAND members. We would love it if you could give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Thank you for listening. Be well.